We, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. My name is Dr. Robert C. Thompson. I am your supreme hierophant of the secret order of alchemical actors, joined this day by Luke Kinneman, our producia discordia, because today is an interview day, Luke. Yeah, I'm very excited for our interview today. Me too. Uh, we're joined by Shay Bilay for today's uh, occult interview. Uh, Shay is, uh, well, Luke's going to tell you all about Shay, but Shay is here to talk a bit about the left-hand path. Luke, tell us some more about Shay. And Shay, say hi to the good people. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you guys so much. Love this show. And I look forward to the discussion. We look forward to it too. Uh, Shay is an author, occult lecturer, musician, performance artist, and podcast host. Focusing on the left-hand path occultism and the host of the Deferred Gnosis podcast. He's a ritual performance artist and musician. His most recent album, and I apologize for my <laughs> pronunciation. I will do it to the best of my ability. And Shay, correct me when I'm wrong. Uh, tis? <laughs> wow, we didn't I'm, even get past the, we didn't get first, it's the first syllable. No, it's a uh, no. No, good attempt, though. It's a uh, seem soon. Seems soon. And All even right. I, it's it's Hebraic, so I'm not even doing it with the best inflection. Gotcha. But. Uh, his most recent book is Frederick Nietzsche in the Left Hand Path, published by, oh man, Atramentus Press. I'm. <laughs> uh, That's pretty has, good. You've got your master's degree in philosophy from, uh, golly. You're, Cat, you're throwing uh, major curveballs at me here, Shay. <laughs> Catholico Universität of Leuven. Okay. Excellent. I, and that's whew. in Belgium, right, Shay? That's right. Yeah, and it's it, it's it, it's Dutch. It uh, translates to uh, the Catholic University. It wasn't a Catholic school by any strict uh, sense. It's mostly secular. But you know, the Belgians uh, hang on to to the tradition, and it's a almost a five hundred year old school. So yeah, and John D went there actually. John D studied there. So oh, that's a cool, cool connection. But yeah, you did pretty good. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, I try. I, I try not to do any foreign language uh, while I'm not at work. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't do Dutch at school, do you, That's Luke? true. Thankfully, no. <laughs> Can you imagine if we taught Dutch in the schools? I have a, a lot world. of students ask me for German. And I'm like, I, guys, I can't help you. I <laughs> we almost became a Dutch colony and... Uh, some of our words, like uh, yay or nay, uh, some of our words were forming at the time. And if things played out just a little bit different during that colonial period, we'd all be speaking Dutch. I wouldn't be mad, especially considering <laughs> the healthcare system. <laughs> it was pretty good. So It was pretty good. Shay, we want to start by doing a little bit of your biography. We want to talk a little bit about your experiences, how you got into occultism, that kind of thing. Uh, why don't you just walk us through? How did you get involved to become an occultist? Sure. The My first major exposure to the world of, what, I guess, what we would call the supernatural was I was around four years old, and I had awoken in the middle of the night uh, to immediate suffocation, and I couldn't open my eyes. And as a child, I didn't fully understand the process of dying. Um, I had very much believed I was dying. And so I saw this almost uh, cartoonish skull and crossbone in my mind's eye, but I couldn't see anything. Eventually, 
I was able to turn over as if I was, at least I imagined I was facing down in the covers, suffocating from the covers. And I was able to turn over and open my eyes. And above my bedroom door was a black ball of energy, a sphere that was shifting. And within the ball was various faces, some people I knew, maybe in my family, some I didn't know. And they were showing faces of joy and laughter and and anger and terror and uh, wrath. And then I, I passed out. And my mother, although uh, a Catholic, Roman Catholic, she uh, very much had a new age type view of things. She would walk into rooms and and give events that had passed. She would talk about past lives. She would talk about how many times I'd come back and and other people in the family. And there's a few events that were more or less unmistakable. She would say, she would stop suddenly, kind of perk up and say, your great-grandfather is in the room. And the light would flicker and it would start to smell like roses. She said, do you smell the roses? So things like that happened regularly. And she would be able to guess when people were going to pass with interesting accuracy. And that all influenced me to kind of be open. My first exposure to the world of the occult or the world of the supernatural is one of extreme deference. I guess one thing someone could have done is in reaction to a terrifying event that I had was kind of run from it. But I came into it seeing it as as this very powerful very heavy kind of experience, very real, very visceral, and very tangible. And so as I grew up, uh, I grew up in kind of a seedy part of Los Angeles where there was a very real struggle, uh, where there was violence everywhere and crime. It was in the, it was in the, uh, in, I was born in the mid eighties. So this was, uh, you know, I was coming of age into my adolescence in the, in the nineties. And it was a horrible time in LA, one of its worst ever. And I saw that regularly. And like many in the occult, if they're not in a very supportive, kind of recent kind of supportive community, I was bullied extremely. Uh, And I went back into my cult roots because I realized there was power there and it helped me get through. And very shortly after going into the occult, I was gravitating towards left-hand path. I was seeking out something a little more realistic, something a little more... Nietzsche talks about this, facing the world as it is, not an ideal one. And the left-hand path in Satanism uh, very quickly offered that this is the world is, and these are things that we face on a daily basis. And here are ways you can protect yourself, and here are ways you can come to terms with who you are, and find a way to be at peace. Uh, When people think of black magic, the left-hand path, or Satanism, and things like that, they think of chaos. They think of, you know, the black magic and curses and things like that, malefic magic. Uh, But in reality, I sought out the left-hand path to have peace within myself and really find a way to embrace and love who I am, despite everything that was going on. And so I, it had such a profound effect on me, I've devoted my life to study and to teaching and to, in my best way, give a foundation and a history uh, and light to many aspects of the left-hand path that are misunderstood or just simply not available to, to people. So I've devoted my life and my scholarly, uh, my scholarly pursuits to it as well. So Shay, I mean, I got a couple questions about this cause it's interesting to me. It, it strikes me like all the episodes we've done that it's almost like Satanism is m- stronger in California 
does that sound like it resonates for you? I mean, even Jack Parsons, it just seems like yeah, yeah, yeah. there's more Satanism out there. Yeah, with Parsons, it's it's a yeah, he 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 started from a thelemic base, um, but kind of flirted around. It, it was at, at his time, germane to the period, there was a sexiness attached to some aspects of darker occultism, but uh, quote unquote darker occultism. But uh, yeah, you know, it it San Francisco was the birthplace of modern Satanism as it is expressed through the writings of Anton LaVey and then Michael Aquino. So it very much started in the revolutionary part of the West Coast. Uh, however, there is Satanisms that came before that. Actually, the first Satanisms, I suppose, came in Europe. And actually, the minute the minute Satan was the universal principle of evil, roughly around the second or third century, when he became the central figure, is the minute some people decided to start worshiping him. And this, uh, no surprise, things for the, especially for the lower class or for poverty, being in a world of struggle, they said, well, that guy protects the rich. The God guy protects the kings and the princes. Who is watching over me? So it was only natural sometimes to say, you know, I'm going to take refuge in the other guy. I'm going to team up with the other guy. But modern Satanism, as we understand it, one of the first iterations was in Poland by uh, Stanislav Szybiszewski. And I include that in the book. But then who would universalize it? Who would bring it to fruition? Who would bring it to a kind of global audience was Anton LaVey, of course. And that started there. Now, having said that, I think there's, there's, a, there's a pocket in Los Angeles, sure. Um, I would say there's a little pocket maybe in New York, and then you have a lot of left-hand pe- path people in Texas. And I would say there's another big pocket in South America that's been rapidly growing over the last 10, 15 years. And then, of course, you have in Scandinavia, there's, there's a big pocket, Dragon Rouge, Dr. Thomas Carlson Network. And I would say the probably the biggest population is Africa right now, is the biggest population of theistic Satanism that's growing. Latin America and Africa is mostly theistic Satanism. And then it's a mix in Europe and the United States, mostly um, atheistic or, or Levian Satanism. So yeah, you have a nice mix. It really depends on the, uh, it really depends on the demographic and it really depends on uh, that, that culture actually affects what kind of left-hand path we're looking at. You know, we've had we had Satanists on the show, Luke. What was it? A couple of years ago, but our focus was really on politics. Then this is our first opportunity to talk to somebody who's really engaged in the religious side of this. Shay, so indulge me a moment here. We see, like in Theosophy, for example, there's an interest in Lucifer, Luciferianism as this light of wisdom. But we wouldn't characterize Theosophy as a left-hand path necessarily, would we? No, it's it's great you bring that up because Blavatsky and Theosophy. And Eliphas Levi would probably be the largest contributors to the esoteric vein of Satanism. They helped rehabilitate. So you had the Romantic poets of the 19th century, um, Baudelaire, and then you had William Blake, and then you had Byron and all these things. And then that kind of created, starting with Milton going a couple of centuries earlier, would create this romantic depiction of Lucifer and Satan as these, uh, as these underdogs, as the great emancipator. And so Blavatsky would cast Lucifer. She had the magazine. She had the regular periodical called Lucifer. And that would then inspire and lead on naturally what would develop with, with Luciferianism, Satan, and so on. 
to say, you know, whether Blavatsky or Theosophy would be. They certainly spent a lot of time talking about the Black Lodge and the idea of, uh, you know, black magic. We're starting to see a little bit of acceptability for witches and witchcraft just a little bit. So they are trying to, there was a lot of interference defense being run in order to kind of protect the image, especially a little bit a decade or two after Blavatsky. But uh, yeah, they they talked about a universal principle. They they were thinking about there's a new way to imagine Satan and definitely Lucifer. And they were they had their own kind of pushing the boundaries, their own transgressive way of doing things at that time. They're starting to voice up in that way. There is left hand path elements, and there's foundationally they allowed the left hand path to define itself. Uh, to call it left hand path wouldn't be entirely accurate. Right. So what does it mean? What is left-hand path? How do you define the term? So there's a few things here. The, uh, you know, if we look at the Vedic sources or the kind of the tantric sources, we think of the agori, we think of the the left hand of God. So this is an idea of individuation um, in order to kind of merge with the divine and a way to embrace antinomianism and transgression. And there's some of that that still maintains the actual left-hand path term was actually introduced to us by Blavatsky, actually. She was overseas in Southeast Asia, and she became aware of the term, and she brought it back, and that's how we understand it today. What this means is it's a focus, generally speaking, you ask anyone what the left-hand path is, they're going to give different answers. But broadly speaking, the left-hand path seeks an individuation, a apotheosis, that is to say, the elevation of oneself to the divine, and generally speaking, a non-servium, so a, a kind of refusal to supplicate to a divine power. That's how it kind of individualized itself with the right-hand path starting in the 60s with LeVay. However, things are very different today. So in the left-hand path also, in another way, it's a collection of religions, religious paths. And in a, as an umbrella term, you have Satanism and all of its forms. There's probably dozens of Satanisms. There's Luciferianism and demonolatry and chaos magic had a very important part to the development of the left-hand path. You also have the Kelepot and or Klipoth or Cliffoth, as, as some say. And the work of Kenneth Grant has become more and more instrumental posthumously for the most part. And so another aspect of it is a collection of religions. And further still, there's a ethical question. So a lot of the left-hand path, at least in a, at, at its origination, at least in the West, contemporary left-hand path, there's an idea that we're open to black magic or malefic magic. And the right-hand path shies away from it. You know, the, the Wiccan, uh, what you do comes back to you times three, right? So there's this, kind of uh, you can't do any magic that's necessarily quote-unquote destructive and the left-hand path is open to that and kind of defining its own ethics uh, very much influenced by Friedrich Nietzsche by the way but this so that's another aspect but even that doesn't quite make sense there's a lot of if you look at today there's a lot of devotional um, Satanists and Luciferians there's there's a lot of there's a there's an idea of supplication, an idea of merging with the divine in a very traditional religious sense that you might see in Islam or you might see in Christianity, uh, just a lot different, a different set of ethics, a different set of sins, so to speak. 
And so that kind of takes that individuation side a, a bit out. And then the ethical side, there's incredibly compassionate Satanists. I think in one of your the interviews you might be alluding to, uh, there's uh, I think you might have spoke to someone from the Satanic Temple. So there's a very secular, compassionate aspect to it. And Satanism traditionally was not exactly malefic. This is Satan was a socialist icon in the 1800s a representative of the working man of the of the underdog against a oppressive regime uh, so that these things get you know how it's useful today i think is that the left hand path is useful that it can describe a, vi a set of religious paths and its subsects beyond that i don't know other than historical reference, if the left-hand path is a very useful term, other than describe these religions. Well, we could say the same about Christianity, couldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, just digging real quick, as you talked about the Aghoris, the, the sort of like Eastern influence. I mean, some of the tantric Kali influence is about violating your own taboos. Is there any of that in there? You know, seeing the Buddha on the road and shooting the Buddha? That's great. You actually allude to, uh, you know, I, t I talk about in the book, the sense of the sense of demonic Zen or crazy Zen, as it's called. So even Eastern, the like you said, the if you find Buddha in the road, obstructing your path, strike him down. Or Che Guevara said, I would strike down Christ himself if he stood in my way. Yes, ab absolutely. There are some who say the modern left-hand path, and they almost say this derogatory. The left-hand path in the West has nothing, no connection to the Vedic one. The Vedic one is the mature <laughs> one. The Vedic one is the enlightened one. You see that a lot, a lot of these, especially dealing with Satanism, Luciferianism, left-hand path. There's a lot of ways that people critique it without it being like what the maybe some of the traditional religions used to be well you're going to hell you're committing sin you're not following the ways of christ now some of the criticisms are making fun of it some of the criticisms now are kind of veiled critiques on its validity and the vedic one is one of them to say that has nothing to do with what the tantric sources do well actually your exact perception is what connects them antinomianism transgressing the boundaries that is actually one of the unifying things in the left-hand path actually you know as we struggle to see what maybe unifies everyone or how useful the term is absolutely this idea of moving past one's boundaries moving past what one expects of themselves climbing the next mountain once they get to the peak and never never resting in one one's laurels always set oneself in a state of inconvenience to evolve and to uh find enlightenment so absolutely those are two things that that mirror each other in the oldest sources of, of left-hand path and what we what we know today i do want to know more about the book Shay, but, but before we get into that and nietzsche i i want to ask a bit about your just digging back into your biography because you have created is it two occult groups at college you did in san francisco and then again in belgium yeah, yeah. So when I went to San Francisco, I went there, I decided that I would, I went back and forth with how I wanted to do school. I started working very young and I kind of fell into a, you know, my, I, I kind of fell into a career in, in, in tech. And I decided that I would, I would 
align more with my passion of I was jumping around with what to commit myself to. And I decided I would move forward with philosophy and take it as far as it could go. Um, academically, I wanted to I wanted to get to that level as I felt like it would uplift me in a number of domains. And I actually had a I was starting to apply for kind of local schools. And I did this a little bit later on. I was already in my late 20s before I decided this. And I started applying schools and I had a dream vision. This is a lucid dream where I saw myself going to San Francisco, going to school there. I had no desire to move to San Francisco. I had no, I had, I didn't even know San Francisco State University existed. It wasn't particularly high as a respected school for philosophy. And it wasn't on my list. And I had this vision, I'd go there. And I decided that I have to change things around. And some things started to manifest from that dream. And I thought, okay, I have to realign my life and I have to move up there. And it became something I felt like I must do. And so I went up there and here's the, the home of Anton LaVey. And I was in LA at the time. That's why I keep saying up there. <laughs> and I mean, if I was in Seattle, I'd say down yeah. there, right? Or if I was in Canada or something. Uh, the, so I went there. This is the home of the Church of Satan. This is, the, this is the birthplace of modern Satanism. And I went to the school and I started looking up the groups there. I wanted to, although I was going to speed through the, my schooling there, uh, I wanted to check into some of the communities. And there was no pagan, several Christian groups. Uh, one of them actually is quite fundamentalist. They're being protested regularly. And there was other groups. There was a lot of ethnic groups, obviously political groups. Not a single one for the occult, or even New Age, even any of that. And I thought, what the hell is going on? This is, this is the birthplace of, the, of a lot of the spiritual movements. This is where a lot of revolutionary thought happens. So I decided I would start the Occult Student Alliance. And I, yeah, I ran into someone else who was actually trying to start it at the same time. And he wanted to call it a cult club. And I didn't like the name. But he was helping a lot with like the graphic design <laughs> and the flyers and stuff. And I said, okay, I'll, I wanted to concede. I thought Colt Student Alliance sounded way better. And they ended up changing it back once I left. But I created that group, and it's still running today. So we're now looking at six years. And um, I guess it takes five years to gain like the highest funding and permanence at a university. So I am incredibly proud of that. And uh, so now it's a thing, a cult student alliance. That's, at San awesome. Francisco. That's cool. How was, how was the original reception to the occult student alliance or the occult club, which I, I do give it to you. Occult student alliance is a much better name. Thanks. Occult club makes yeah, me like, absolutely. I work in a middle school. <laughs> I think, oh, we have an occult club. Right. I think a cult student alliance, that's your collegiate level. But how was yeah, the original reception? Right. You had another individual who was kind of, you know, you guys were working collaboratively to create this, but you know, you at least had yourself and another like-minded individual, but how was everyone else's kind of perception? Yeah. So what the number one thing that I thought was important when creating this group is that all paths would be okay. And for obvious reasons. And I said, this has to be a group at its foundation that has to be open to all 
paths. And um, Satanism was a big one for me. Obviously, I wanted to make sure that this was, look, I had experienced when I was younger a lot in the pagan community that would uh, not, who would try to invalidate me, who would be even negative, incredibly rude. uh, And uh, I experienced quite a bit of that as I, you know, as I matured and it's gotten a lot better now. It's still there. It's just changed form. Um, There's still some tacit ridicule and I always feel like I have to prove myself. So there's still that there. And, but that's why I wanted to make it that it's in a place that's going to embrace everyone. And we couldn't get anyone to sign on because I listed I listed a lot of things in there. <laughs> Kimbanda, a lot of keywords, Kimbanda, Palo Mayombe, uh, you know, Satan, Lucifer. And it was actually difficult to get some prof- – because you had to get a San Francisco employee to sign on. Fortunately, there was someone who was more – this was maybe two weeks before we left. We're like, we have to get certified. And – there was a teacher's aide who who was willing to she, you had to have a San Francisco email in order to certify and she decided to do it and i think um this was a this was a trans woman and that's only important to mention because you when you have to face kind of when you have to face an arduous path of identity you tend to have a softer acceptance of others that are a bit transgressive. So um, it worked out. It was finally, I left with it being a certified uh, author, you know, whatever you would call it, officially recognized group under the university. So that's how that ended. Now juxtapose that experience with your experiences in Belgium. How did things go with kind of starting organizations uh, within like Leuven? In Leuven, it was... It was a little different. So I wanted to have a little bit more fun and I didn't want to do, I didn't want to have such an active intensive role as I did in San Francisco In San Francisco. I was teaching a lot of classes and I was running a lot of things. I was the, I was the president more or less, whatever, whatever the rules are. And in Belgium, I didn't feel like doing that. I didn't want to necessarily, I wanted to kind of, you know, I called it the black sun sect because I wanted to be a little bit more explicit and um, you know that really what that was is I taught a few classes and I kind of created the space but all the people going there were kind of atheistic <laughs> like not just atheistic but secular they didn't really believe everyone I encountered didn't really know if they believed the occult existed which is fascinating because the United States in San Francisco no matter how atheistic people were, they believe. They believe magic is real. I didn't encounter a single person who said, I don't know if this exists. And we're talking about dozens. Like, I think the group went up to 50 or 60 at some point. In Belgium, very few of them believed it was an actual force. So I don't, I don't know if that's a demographic. I don't know if Europe is just a bit more atheistic than the United States. Maybe what's interesting is we think of the religious right in the united states we think of the christian right and we think of fundamentalism we think of things like that but what's funny is there seems to be a general religiosity amongst americans broadly (laughs) this is what i started thinking about like americans believe a bit more 
<laughs> yeah, I think that there's something to that, Shay. I, I hadn't really thought about the contrast between Europe and America, but secularization seems to have come to European countries faster and harder, and we seem to flee to those third ways as quick as we get out of the Christian church. Right. That's exactly right. So that uh, that was a little bit more shorter lived than there um than it was in than my than my work at San Francisco but it still made an impact let me ask you before we get into the book should students still major in philosophy today statistically speaking yes and this is if we're just when that question is asked I I have to kind of think of from what perspective it's being asked. So I think it's more or less open uh, from a, from a, pra- I'll start with the pragmatic and practical. Oh, college is useless. Why even? So there's a lot of that discussion sure. going on. Philosophy just makes you a better thinker and it makes you smarter and it makes you think of how you think. And even at a fundamental basic philosophy education, it helps you think about how you think. And I think that is crucial. We are in an age when people are getting away with bullshit at a, at a scale that is staggering. And a philosophy education would allow people to think of how fallacious something is, how a lack of evidence, to think about whether something holds water. Um, a bit more, and the world would be a better place. Uh, they would think more critically. So in that sense, as enrichment, it makes sense. Now, from a pragmatic kind of, does it make money? Statistically speaking, philosophy is, the, from what I understand and what I have heard, philosophy is the highest paid liberal arts degree. Some of that is because a lot of philosophy majors move into law and therefore lawyers, but philosophy is hard. Academic philosophy is difficult. And so, yeah, that might be a part of it. But I would say those two reasons, philosophy is something that uh, people should pursue. I think it should actually, I think an associate's in philosophy, so maybe 20 units or so in symbolic logic, critical thinking, philosophy 101, I think it should be mandatory. Of course, I'm (laughs) biased, but it should be, I think it should be mandatory education. It should start in high school. Yeah, I think everyone should take acting class, but I'm with you, Shay. I I wanted to give you an opportunity (laughs) because, you know, the humanities are under siege right now, particularly in the United States. And uh, it's, you're a person who has uh, done great things with the study of the humanities and the study of philosophy. So, yeah, I just wanted to give you a chance to to let let folks know it's not so crazy to major in the humanities. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, right, right. I think it is it is under siege, and it's called it's called humanities for a reason. This allows us to think about what makes us human, and the arts is just as important as the STEM. That's why. Um, What's his name? He was a governor that uh, forgetting his name at the moment, but he he was a former WWE Jesse Ventura. Yeah. Jesse Ventura. He was actually in an interview with Rogan, Joe Rogan, and he said it should be Steam. So the A in STEM would yeah. be art. So that art should be seen as as just important. And I I agree with him. I think it's essential. Just the human race requires being in touch with aesthetics and philosophy and literature and his you know 
how to view art in history and how to view themselves and a study of the spirit, not necessarily in a theological sense, but the, the study of what it means to be human. And I think that's absolutely essential. And the minute we lose that is the minute we lose everything. I think AI is actually a point when we're starting to ask ourselves, what is it that makes us human? So now more than ever, we have to define these things or something else is going to define right. it We've for been us. thinking a lot about another performer who became a governor, namely, namely uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? And oh. Skynet uh, has been on a lot of people's minds lately. I, I think you're right. <laughs> we got to focus on the human. <laughs> That's all right. right, let's get to your boy Nietzsche. Uh, tell us, I mean, let, let's imagine, right, Shay? Not all of our listeners are experts in German philosophy. So <laughs> give us a little intro. What? Who is Nietzsche? Where did he come from? What's he all about? Yeah, so Nietzsche had a kind of profound influence on uh, not just the world of philosophy, but he's had influence on various paths and schools of thought around the world. And, you know, he generally, he spoke of a lot of ideas. So to kind of go into what his, to what his general position is, it's hard to say, but would he, if you really to kind of summarize it, he taught us to analyze, analyze life as this transient kind of world as it is to accept the world as it is and to reject nihilism that has come in the form of different cultural factors but also through the way of a fascination and obsession with the ideal with the paradiso with the will to truth so the neoplatonic conception of the separation of heaven and the earth we must die for an for a for what could come he saw it as a slave morality this is for people of dire means or little means to dream of a mastery, the dream of a masterhood, uh, where where they're much stronger at this point. Nietzsche said, "Think about who you are and assess where you are, and act upon it. It is real action, and to not allow these ideals to give you a fantasy, almost a narcotization, as he called it. This is a an opium, an opiate that." that removes you and separates you from accepting the very real and very painful and the very real struggle that exists in this world as it is. And so that philosophy, and he said, you should even fall in love with it, Amor Fati. So you should fall in love with the, even the most painful aspects of life because they are just as essential to your development. And that is what, Nietzsche brought to the fore. There was some Schopenhauer was kind of a Nietzsche was almost more or less a protege of Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer brought in the idea of the will to life and how we are slaves to these natural processes to procreate. And there, you know, there is, there isn't this inherent meaning. So Schopenhauer helped kind of introduce that and Nietzsche advanced on it. He took the will to life, turned it in more or less to the will to power. And um, that kind of solidified his place. He was incredibly transgressive and he sent shockwaves through the world of philosophy when it was starting to be, when academic philosophy was starting to find itself, become more technical. Um, that's not to say Nietzsche was rare for his time. There was a lot of anarchists. There was a lot of political anarchists, uh, political rebellion. There was 
obviously in literature, you had people already speaking of the most transgressive of the most transgressive uh, aspects of religion. They're already challenging religion in the most extreme way. Um, so Nietzsche's not unique in that way, but he definitely brought it to the to academic thought and to academic philosophy. He's generally spoken of, along with Kierkegaard, as one of the two fathers of existentialism. Indeed, indeed. So um, he would help influence many of the of the modern existentialists, particularly the French existentialists, that would follow that would follow him. So he 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 got us thinking about what our modern world is becoming and he also served a sense of a prophet he very much embodied the zarathustra character from thus spake zarathustra which is more or less almost comes off as a channeled work but that's my own personal <laughs> thing is he he created a prophetic work and that very much serves his prophecy and he spoke of a world that is to come just like zarathustra met in the in, in Turin and uh, the Zara, he comes to the village square and he says, God is dead and you have killed him. And he talks about how people are failing to understand this. They're looking at him and they're seeing him as a madman. And uh, they don't believe, they don't understand what is coming. God is dead. That's not so much what to worry about. But the central of all, the center of all meaning is coming to an end. Everything you've based your life on for the last 2,000 years, from if the, if the crops fail, it was God. If, if you had your first period, it was God. If you had some disease, it was God. And everything, or the devil, by the way, they're very obsessed with the devil. <laughs> and now that's gone. What are you going to do now that the center of meaning is dead? And he feared that there's going to be obsession with a political identity. There's going to be obsession with entertainments. There's going to be obsession with alcohol and, and narcotics. He saw that this was the, the biggest fear, the most monumental fear that was to come to the human race. And that's what he was trying to warn us about. He's one of those figures as well with Wagner and some of these other 19th century guys who are blamed for Hitler. So tell us why that's mm. an inaccuracy. I mean, if you perceive it that way. Yeah, yeah, this is a this is an interesting topic to to discuss and I'll speak of it in in a couple of layers to be to give an honest answer. So, yep, Wagner was seeking a, you know, and this is why Nietzsche was actually uh, actually friendly towards and positive towards Wagner because Wagner represented a revival of traditional classical themes, uh, so pagan themes. Nietzsche had a pagan versus Christian kind of idea and dichotomy. He saw what was pagan as being strong in ethics, strong in meaning, celebrating the natural world celebrating the 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 more complex aspects of life the the blood and gore and sex and rock and roll of reality and nietzsche saw wagner as reviving this in in contemporary culture and society um, he 
begin to fall away from Wagner because of some of the more Christian themes he would come to later. But uh, yeah, so so that is why Wagner would kind of be seen as an inspiration to National Socialism, a, a revival of the of the German of the German spirit or whatever the you know whatever Hitler and his and his crew kind of interpreted as um Nietzsche the obviously Hitler was it posthumously was inspired by Nietzsche and Nietzsche's sister helped kind of validate his interest so his sister is really blamed for for kind of i guess uh, i guess maybe presenting it in a in a in a in a accommodating way taking his philosophy and saying yes hitler you're right these ideas you have about nietzsche and his will to power and the the slave morality uh, and the master race uh, all of this applies to you know all of this conforms but nietzsche would have absolutely been disgusted by statism and he would have been absolutely disgusted by some of the some of the merge the collective the idea of the collective how the how the weakest among a group can also be as great as everyone else he hated that and he resented that so that a lot of aspects of of the third reich he would have absolutely resented there is an aspect of the kind of the focus on athleticism of the Hitler youth, the focus of pagan revivalism, which was throughout. I think mostly that was Himmler that engineered that, that cultural, that some of that revivalism he would have liked to be completely honest. Um, but I don't know if that would have been enough for him to align himself with the Nazi regime. And there was a lot of free thinkers and people that played along as little as they could so they didn't get thrown in a camp. So there was a lot of people that were enemies of the regime, but they did what they had to do to stay under the radar. It's hard to say where Nietzsche would have fell. Uh, I cannot, we can't speak about, it's hard to, it's hard to speculate on a dead man's perspective, but I will say there was a lot more about Nazism that Nietzsche would have hated than uh, he would have embraced. So let's get into occultism now. Where's What's the tie that you see there? With Nietzsche's influence. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. We can leave Hitler. I'm this like, is wow, not, not a Hitler day. The occult. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, Nietzsche, not an occultist per se, right? Um, sure, no, no, no. So, yeah, Nietzsche didn't, focus too much on um, supernaturalism in fact he he mostly resented it he does speak a little bit on spiritism he kind of alludes to it a little bit and he actually saw it as a faint kind of regurgitation of dead christian themes so he actually from the little bit he talked about it he actually didn't care for alternative spirituality so he wouldn't have cared much for the occult, at least at first. What it, how it developed now, it's hard to say. But yeah, so so that's where he laid. But he saw how he influenced the occult was that 
the idea of kind of breaking free of theological oppression, if you will, from Christianity and Abrahamic religion, that would be one thing, because obviously the occultists uh, were waiting for that. They wanted to, they, you know, they had hidden secret and they wanted to shake the foundation of oppressive religion, um, tyrannical religion in culture. And so Nietzsche obviously was an ally there. He also spoke about some, there are some ideas of his that could be seen as, you know, becoming, you know, one reaching towards being the Ubermensch or the Superman. Obviously, the occult has always had an idea of raising one's posture in the world or raising one's posture spiritually. Apo again, apotheosis, the idea of becoming a god. Many magicians viewed this as a, as, as a goal, even going far back to the early Solomonic tradition and even prior to that to sorcery in pre-Christian times. So there was this idea of making becoming a master of reality. So that Ubermensch idea, becoming the best of oneself, the self-overcoming, that aligned there as well. His idea of the will to power and the Dionysian and the Apollonic talking about opposing forces or warring forces, uh, this could also kind of also inspired some metaphysical claims. So the earliest, uh, with Stanislav Szybyszewski, the Polish decadent writer and poet, he was incredibly inspired by Nietzsche and he took it to a religious level. He was the first to call himself a Satanist and he wrote the Synagogue of Satan in 1899. And it was, it, a lot of it was based on on Friedrich Nietzsche. And then he would have a protege, Anseins Urs, who was a German diplomat in World War I. And then in World War II, he was, in, he was also a decadent poet. And he was so inspired by Szybyszewski and Nietzsche that he toured Berlin and he toured Germany in the 1910s uh, with a lecture called The Religion of Satan. And he was using Szybyszewski's Synagogue of Satan to discuss this the the what a religion of satan would look like and a lot of it was a rejecting a rejection of christian tyranny and an openness to what it means to be human and an acceptance of the witch the the classical witch that was so hated for uh, uh, almost two millennia and said this is actually closer to what it means to be human and so obviously the connection from Nietzsche to Satanism happened almost while he was still alive. So, uh, you know, so obviously it was, it was influencing the left hand, what would become the beginnings or the origination of the left hand path in the West. So uh, yeah, that connection has always been obvious. And it was obvious even when I began my path um, in my early adolescence. And you see a role for supernaturalism in this philosophy, even though Nietzsche did not? It's not in, certainly not a, it, it's a much more of a stretch to focus on the supernaturalism aspect of it. That clearly is not much of a, of a inspiration, but to the philosophy, um, you look at Crowley in the Gnostic mass, he names off saints he sainted certain individuals. Nietzsche is listed there. So in Gnostic masses across the world, when they perform their Sunday Gnostic mass, 
Nietzsche's name is mentioned in this religious rite. So the Crowley, Crowley saw the idea of the Ubermensch as a spiritual evolution that transcended traditional religious structures and um, the confining or the constraining aspects of traditional religion. So it's, it, it started very early on, uh, kind of towards the end of his life and even after that. So it was more the philosophy that would drive these occult religions and the left-hand path religions that was more influenced by Nietzsche. I see. So the supernaturalism, you know, like we say in Hinduism is uh, don't focus on that or Buddhism. <laughs> if it happens, don't worry about it. <laughs> Keep your eyes on the on the prize. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> definitely. Uh, Luke, do you have questions? Yeah. Uh, the easiest way to, for me to phrase it is where did your passion kind of come from? Like what, what works of Nietzsche, his connection to the left-hand path, like how did you get so enthralled with that to the point where you wanted to create a work or create your book that kind of focuses on his his work essentially i started reading nietzsche soon after i started reading levey like many of my time um levey was the first introduction to satanism uh for me I remember kind of reading it. I was reading a lot of witchcraft uh, encyclopedia type things. And I, so I kind of heard LeVay in the Church of Satan and I, I didn't really understand it yet. I was probably 12 or 13. And I went to Borders. This is a bookstore in, uh, uh, in the LA area. I don't know if it was in different parts, but I think now it's like, yeah, bankrupt. we do have borders as well. <laughs> I, well. We did. I should say. Yeah. yeah. And it didn't survive. Barnes and Nobles did though. And I like Barnes and Noble, but, uh, <laughs> we've got that too. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I walked in and I walked to the metaphysical section and I saw the satanic rituals and this was a companion to the satanic Bible that came out a few years after it. And uh, it's still, both are still in print. And uh, at the very beginning of the book, it has this striking kind of paragraph that says, on the altar of the devil, up is down, pleasure is pain, freedom is slavery. And I thought, wow, this is, what the hell is this? And <laughs> I was in love. And I soon after... I decided to to that this was me, and with some, I was a bit more spiritual than Levey's philosophy. That's for sure, a bit more theistic. Um, like I said, I, I grew up in a supernaturalist upbringing that kind of stayed with me, and but it, it resonated for me certainly as a path. And as I kind of went through the literature very early on, like Nietzsche was mentioned everywhere. And I thought, what is it about Nietzsche? And what is this book of philosophy called The Antichrist? What the f is going on here? <laughs> this sounds intense. And I started reading Nietzsche, and I wasn't very good at understanding it. <laughs> and uh, I think no one is incredibly good at understanding Nietzsche, actually. <laughs> I don't care how <laughs> old you are or how much you study him. There's Nietzsche has things that might even seem contradic contradictory, actually. Um, so... Uh, I, I, but I started to understand him a bit more as I got older. And as I entered philosophy, 
I thought, well, this is a lifelong passion. Why not I write my thesis about something with Nietzsche? And why don't I, why don't I go all in and write about the obvious inspiration Nietzsche had on, on Satanism and the left-hand path? And I was able to find a cup. Why I also went to Europe to do it was because they're bigger on continental philosophy, religious philosophy. Um, in the United States, it might have been harder to find someone to sponsor that kind of thesis. But over there, I had a couple of I had a couple of uh, professors that were willing to supervise the thesis. And uh, when when I completed it, I thought, I wonder if there's a place for this to to make into it to flesh out as a book. And I kind of expanded it a bit. And I found Atremendous Press, which is kind of philosophy focused. And I thought, hell, let's make it happen. Cool. So Luke wants us to to get that plug in. Shay, how can how can folks find it? You said it's through Atremendous Press, but is there any anywhere specifically you'd like to direct listeners? Sure, sure. So there's Atremendous Press is the publisher. So there's obviously some there, but there's also all the major online distributors of some of the more fine edition grimoires. So Miskatonic in the US, Anathema in Canada, Cyclic Law in Europe. And there's a lot of brick and mortar stores as well. So Dark Star in Portland, Oregon, um, Crooked Path Apothecary, which I just taught a workshop at when I was in LA. So they're in LA. And there's a couple of stores there's splendor solace in massachusetts and some others in canada some others around and uh watkins books the legendary walk watkins books and courtyard books in england so yeah it's at it's at various stores um in the united states and europe and online distributors as well and of course if someone wants a signed or personalized copy they can uh, they can reach out to me and I'm happy to do that. And I usually am able to give it for less than it is at these various distributors because, yeah, I care about that. <laughs> and how can folks reach you? Yeah, you can um, you can email me. Actually, you could you know see me on Facebook, Instagram under Shea Belay, also YouTube Shea Belay, and that's S H E A. B-I-L-E. My podcast is deferrednosis.com. And you can even, uh, you can reach me by email if you want to do that. That's shayblay at gmail.com. So. Terrific. Well, Shay, this has been a, a deep conversation. I appreciate this. A little bit of philosophy for the confessors out there is uh, good for the soul, yeah? I think so. I think despite the war on philosophy and the humanities, I hope that we are able to give at least a sample of, of, of that in light of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, any closing thoughts for us? Yeah, I think what we could learn from all the various figures that, that I had brought up and the different paths, whether it's the left-hand path or the crooked path or Nietzsche or LeVay or... Michael Aquino or um, Chopin, any any of the people we discussed, is that when one 
challenges who they are, they come closer to becoming um, what they will. So some believe that's getting closer to God. Some believe that's becoming an actualization. But we, what we should always do, regardless of the path you walk, is not fall into the narcotics of convenience. We should actually, in fact, if Nietzsche is to teach us something, we should embrace inconvenience. We should challenge what we are and understand, much like Edisus, much like the process of a snake losing its skin. We should face those things that question what we are and inspires us, forces us to become something greater than that. And I think if anything, if my work, uh, if anything I'm trying to, in any message I'm trying to express, anything, any of the things I do, whether art or writing does, and I think for many of these figures we discussed, is to, is to remember that. Remember that life, uh, the challenges of life should be embraced and it should be used as a catalyst for transformation. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Shay. That's Shay Belay joining us here today for this uh, conversation about the philosophy of Nietzsche and the left-hand path. My name is Rob C. Thompson. Uh, this guy over here is uh, Luke Kinnaman, our producer at Discordia. Luke, say goodbye to the good people. Bye-bye.